I got the inspiration that I wanted to share with you some of my favorite mystical poetry. It was announced there like uh, Kashmir Shaivism mystical um, poetry, but the truth is it's not going to be only from Kashmiri Shaivism. I'm going to quote from a couple of Christian mystics as well, and from other Indian mystical poetry. I, in the last two satsangs, or uh, at least uh, in, the la- in two out of three of the last satsangs, I commented poetry of Abhinava Gupta, the first poem ever and the last poem ever of Abhinava Gupta, showing the parkour of his um, spiritual revelation, of his spiritual opening. And in this way, I wanted to tell you something about my own relationship with uh, mystical poetry, because when I was a teenager, I did not feel inclined towards uh, practicing poetry. I could admit that sometimes some poems were really giving a feeling, an emotion, that they were suggestive. But um, I thought that people can simply say straightforward exactly the same thing without complicating their daily language in trying to make it flowery. I didn't see any usefulness in this flowery language. Later, when I started being in touch with the mystical traditions, I have seen that all the great mystics of this humanity, men and women, um, Hindu and Buddhist and Christian and Sufi, they were encoding their spiritual experiences into poetry simply because common language was insufficient to describe what they were experiencing. And being in touch with mystical poetry, I suddenly reevaluated the whole field of poetry because poetry has this magic that it allows, through the power of the word, through the vaksidi, it allows to suggest things which are of divine nature through otherwise an instrument which is limited. In time, I have accumulated about 10 pieces of mystical poetry or uh, prose, which um, always inspired me. And uh, I would like to share some of them with you, because in special meditations, in special moments, when trying to reach a good resonance with a mysterious with a transcendental, this poetry can be very inspiring for me, and I hope that by sharing it with you and trying to explain the convoluted metaphysical things which sometimes are included into it, I hope that um, I will manage to transmit to you something of this feeling. So be prepared for an evening, uh, not so much of metaphysical explanations, 
as much as of transmission because I'm going to quote people who spoke about God who is incomprehensible and unsurpassable in every single way and yet through poetry some of these people have managed to express some of those things. I will start with a simple poem from Laleshvari, the most important female poetess of Kashmir, who in the tradition of Kashmiri Shaivism gives us a poem of seven lines, a real short poem where she expresses a great wisdom. The poem is generally titled, I don't know if it's a title which she gave to this poem, it's titled Venerate Shiva. Very many people who are not into mysticism, who are not into spirituality, they have a lot of qualms with words like this, like venerate Jesus, venerate Allah, venerate Shiva. People feel like veneration is too much to give. It's ridiculous because sometimes people venerate football players, people venerate porn stars, people venerate all sorts of absurd things of the daily life. But when it comes to venerate Shiva, God, who is the only one who is truly worth of veneration, worthy to be venerated, then people feel awkward. People feel like it's too much of a strong word. It sounds like sectarianism, cultish, too religious, and all that. Laleshvari, in her simple approach, straightforward approach, she has some of the following words to say. Dawn and dusk, day and night, winter and spring, come and go. As you can see, she mentions things which are somehow opposites. It's the famous thing of yoga to speak about day and night, pleasure and displeasure, spiritual and not spiritual, meaningful and without meaning or confused and all the... So she basically quotes, but she doesn't go into the metaphysics of the opposites. When she mentions opposites, she mentions things of the world, things which belong to the objective reality. It's a symbol for saying, you know, you see just diversity. Diversity means black and white, things which are opposite. So she says dawn and dusk, which are opposites. Day and night, which are opposites. Winter and spring, which are not exactly opposites. She could have said winter and summer. But the seasons in India are celebrated in a slightly different way. The Hindu tradition goes into six seasons instead of four, like in Europe. And that's why the point is both that it's a poetic license. Once she said day and night, dawn and dusk, 
then she can afford to not go literally and say winter and summer. She can say winter and spring because they are very different from each other anyway. Come and go. So she basically tells us when you are in samsara, even things which are opposite, that now you are in pleasure, now you are in pain, now you are in sickness, now you are in good health, they come and go. People say, I want always to stay in pleasure. I always want to stay in health. And it's natural. It's not a bad thing to wish the good things. But Laleshvari say, they come and go. Belonging to samsara, they are transient. They don't last forever. So, even the flow of time is just a play. So therefore, if things come and go, now it's winter, now it's summer, now it's day, now it's night, now it's dawn and now it's dusk. She mentions opposites, which are all of them part of the flow of time. Then she says, even the flow of time. Time in ancient philosophies was considered an absolute value. But she says, even the flow of time is just a play. It's something which happens And things are coming, now it's dawn, and now it's dusk, and now it's day, and now it's night. It's a play, don't you see? Nothing is eternal there, nothing is absolute. And then she concludes, because she started with a musing about the fact that time goes by. Everything comes and goes. And she says, life passes quickly. But alas... Man's foolish hopes go on without respite. Really, there are many people who, when they are 60 years old, they still feel like they are 17 or 20. Like we never grow up in some ways. And of course, people can become more mistrustful, more grumpy, more this, more that, simply by acquiring certain experiences, not all of them pleasurable in this life. But nevertheless, Laleshvari tells us something which Buddha tells us. Desire, 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 desire without end. She says, alas, oh, alas, man's foolish hopes go on without respite. People, they are 80 years old and they still hope that they are going to be young and beautiful again, or some nonsense like this. No, she's seen it all. Everybody has seen it all. Life passes quickly. Many people say, I was young the other day. Most of you who are young, you don't know how this goes. But when you will get older, you will see that in a certain way, youth was just yesterday. I don't deny that there can be some psychological conditions of torment and pain where people feel that they lived too much. But generally, everybody is trying to find a warm spot in the sun to have a cozy time, and then life passes quickly. And but alas, she muses, man's foolish hopes go on without respite. Like people, even when they should think about, okay, it's over, they don't think that it's over. They're foolish hopes. She calls them foolish hopes. They go on without respite. 
Like, no, the, the game of time, time is just a play. She says the flow of time is just a play. Life passes quickly, but man's foolish hopes go on without respite. And then she comes mystically, very beautiful. She says, venerate Shiva. Venerate Shiva, she repeats. Venerate Shiva, she says it the third time. Oh, you of little knowledge. She says, you live in this life, time passes quickly, everything is an illusion. You have foolish hopes over foolish hopes. Like She says, wake up. Venerate Shiva in all this nonsense. There is just one fulcrum, just one stable point in all this universe of change, change, change. She says, stop your foolish hopes that go on without respite. Venerate Shiva. Venerate Shiva. Venerate Shiva, O you of little knowledge. She scolds people like Jesus. She says, O ye of little faith. No? So does Laleshvari. She is not ashamed to say, Venerate Shiva, O you of little knowledge. Like you know so little about the universe that you can't even see that that's what you are supposed to do. She says, Venerate Shiva, O you of little knowledge. And then she comes with a final verse which is like a masterpiece of poetry. Here she puts, she mused and she said the flow of time is just a play. Life goes quickly, she knows. Her life has gone quickly. No? And yet people's foolish hopes go, venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva. She found the solution, but she wants to give it to you. She says, venerate Shiva, O you of little knowledge. And then she hits beautifully, beautiful metaphor. She says, the rules of grammar will be of no use when the hour of death will be coming. Like, people are clinging to all sorts of absurd things. In those Sanskrit times of Kashmir, people who knew Sanskrit were very proud of their knowledge of the grammar, that they could speak and write flawlessly in Sanskrit. She doesn't say that Sanskrit is good or bad or something, but she says if all you've got in your life is that you know the rules of grammar and you are based on other such things, people are not based on the rules of grammar. They are based on the fact that they have children and grandchildren, that uh, they, I don't know, they fed six children in Africa during their lives or some, you know. And she says the rules of grammar, which means all these little things of life which come and go, the rules of grammar will be of no use when the hour of death will be coming. The hour of death is inevitably coming. Venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva. All the rest is of zero importance. What will you do with the rules of grammar? When you die, you'll rely. But I knew very good grammar during my life. It's worth, you discover it's worth zero. It's a currency that has no power. It's, it's a dead currency. You know, the rules of grammar will be of no use. She doesn't say of little use. She, will, she says clearly, the rules of grammar will be of no use when the hour of death is coming, will be coming. Therefore, 
This is a short poem, so motivating. Like, be practical, be direct, venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva. Okay, you say, I'm not a Shaiva person, I am Muslim. Venerate Allah, venerate Allah. I'm Christian, venerate Jesus, venerate the Father in heaven, venerate God. In Kashmiri Shaivism, God is Bhairava, is Shiva. So it's easy for her to say, venerate Shiva. O oh, you of little knowledge. And having started so beautifully with a little authentic spirit from Laleshwari, let me share with you a fragment of a chapter written by a Christian saint around the 8th century AD who is called Peter of Damascus. It's obvious to say that he lived in today's Syria, because that's why he was from Damascus, Peter of Damascus. He wrote about many things. I'm going to share another paragraph from him tonight. But the first which I would like to share is one which always turned me on, because it's, uh, it's the equivalent of mystical madness, praise, worship, veneration, and also at the same time like mantras. He starts speaking about God in words which pile up and pile up and pile up and eventually they just give an amazing feeling. The chapter from Peter of Damascus, but I'll not read the whole chapter for you, is called Knowledge of God. Like, how to know God? What can we say about the knowledge of God? Most people say, how can I know God? I am an agnostic, I am an atheist, I am this, I am a rationalist. And now I come to Agama, all these people keep talking about a universal consciousness that pervades the whole universe. And how to know it? What can you know about this? Like, I would like to address this issue, which is so provocative when you come from the outer darkness into these things. And here is a fragment from this chapter. He says, All things that God has created have an origin, and if he wishes, an end, since they were brought into existence out of non-existence. So everything which has a beginning must sooner or later have an end. But what if God doesn't want it to have an end for super long time, theoretically indefinite? He can do that. Cosmic consciousness can do whatever because it has the infinite and its disposal. So he says all things that God has created, they have an origin. And if he wishes, an end. Like our life has an origin and an end. (coughs) Since they were brought into existence out of non-existence. This is the very definition of Dumavati. That in the beginning there was nothing. And afterwards there is again the end of things. From void to void. God, however, has neither origin nor end which makes God automatically 
incomprehensible. You know, like, how can you understand something which has no origin and no end? The same is true of his virtues. That is, the divine shaktis would be like the Mahavidyas, the three main shaktis, Icha, Jnana, Kriya in Kashmiri Shaivas, virtues, he calls them. And he says the the same is true of his virtues, since he was not at any time without them. And if he has no beginning and no end, then not only the Shiva aspect, but the Shakti aspect, they are eternal. God and his virtues. So the same is true of his virtues, since he was not at any time without them. And now he starts with a list, which is like he says one, two, three, and then he kind of loses it completely, like a mystic. And he goes on and on, you would better try to go, like to feel what this man says. He says, he is always beyond goodness. Cannot say that God is good. When he sent his angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he was also good, but he was beyond goodness. There was there something beyond mere goodness. So he is always beyond goodness, righteous, all wise, all powerful, unconquerable, dispassionate. That's the equivalent word to detachment in Buddhism, detached, uncircumscribed. Now it starts going wild because uncircumscribed. Circumscribed means something which can be put inside a circle. But God cannot be put inside a circle because he is inside, outside, and the circle itself. Uncircumscribed, infinite, unsearchable, and yet we search for God. But God is unsearchable. Only the grace makes you discover the unsearchable, incomprehensible. People try to understand God. How can you understand God? God is incomprehensible. Unending. He said already infinite. You know, he's raving. You know, he's this, this, this. Unending. Eternal. Uncreated. Invariable. God never changes. People say it's new day. It's new times. Now religion has to be different. No, because God is invariable, invariable, unchanging. There's no change in the divine nature. True, incomposite. It was Milarepa who meditated and said everything which is composite is ephemeral. Therefore, only something which is incomposite. God is not made of parts. God is just one. Only that can be eternal. Otherwise, it would be ephemeral. There will be relativity. So he says, incomposite, invisible. And yet people try to see God. Untouchable. And people try to embrace God and be embraced by God. 
ungraspable, perfect, beyond being, inexpressible, inexplicable. Who can explain God? Full of mercy. Miraculously, this something is full of mercy, full of compassion and sympathy. Saint Mary of Egypt said it, no? Blessed be God who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. By which miracle this incomprehensible thing is full of mercy, full of compassion, and full of sympathy. All ruling, all seeing. Let me Put it again in one go, so you see how he just, well, goes. He says, he is always beyond goodness, righteous, all-wise, all-powerful, unconquerable, dispassionate, uncircumscribed, infinite, unsearchable, incomprehensible, unending, eternal, uncreated, invariable, unchanging, true, incomposite, invisible, untouchable, ungraspable, perfect, beyond being, inexpressible, inexplicable, full of mercy, full of compassion and sympathy, all ruling, all seeing. But, as St. Dionysius the Areopagite has said, that's the same Dionysius who wrote about the angels, who wrote about the nine classes of angels. So he quotes Dionysius, The fact that God possesses these virtues does not mean that he is compelled to exercise each one of them as holy men are. So God is not prisoner of his own setup. He has the virtues and still the cosmic consciousness is independent. It has its independence. It's not like, hey, you got into the game, now dance the dance. doesn't work like that. The cosmic consciousness is not falling prisoner to its own maya. There is Maya, but it doesn't mean that Shiva, who is capable of creating the Maya, can, is enslaved or serves the Maya. So Dionysius said, well, God is all those and more. The list is infinite in itself. <laughs> but it does not mean that he is compelled to exercise each one of them as holy men are. See, holy people, holy men, holy women, they do live a life of virtue. And for them, it's not a condition like, now I choose not to exert the divine virtue. That's not a choice when you are a creature looking for the Creator. When you are coming back home, you have to follow a set of rules. The Yama and Niyama, the Ten Commandments, 
Therefore, holy people, they do not equal God, okay? You know, in the case of Jesus, we can say that Jesus said very clearly, I am God. But for the so-called holy man, he says they are, it's their law, it's their dharma that they have to exert the virtues. God exerts the virtues only out of benevolence, because he wishes so. He acts virtuously because he chooses to. He chooses to. That's why Shiva is called the auspicious. In, in Sanskrit, Shiva, the closest translation of the name, is beneficent, auspicious. Like God could be cruel as well. But Shiva is God which is auspicious, beneficent. He smiles. He gives you the compassion. He gives you the support. Like Mary of Egypt. Blessed be God who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. So Peter of Damascus, he says, he acts virtuously, showing you the good side, because he chooses to, and uses the virtues as tools with complete freedom and power over them. It's like Shiva yielding Shakti. The virtues are infinite, as he said, because God was not at any time without them. So they come, they have no origin and no end. Shakti is eternal, and yet the cosmic consciousness of Shiva yields this Shakti, as he says, with complete freedom and power over the virtues. It is from God that along with their being, angels and holy men have by grace received the virtues. So, we got from God our being, our own being, we got it from God. That touch of Michelangelo, no? We got the life, the breath of consciousness with Adam. So, it's from God that we got our own being, but also, by grace, we receive the virtues. And it is through emulating Him, God is like an example, like a model, that they become righteous, good, and wise. Angels, holy men, they just imitate, like that title of the book, The Imitation of Jesus Christ. You imitate Imitate. By this imitation, they become righteous, good, and wise. These are gifts. The gift of righteousness, dharma, attuning with dharma, goodness, and wisdom. Because they are creatures, so they come to God. They are not God in any way, only potentially. Because they are creatures, they have need of God's assistance and inspiration. For without this, they can possess neither virtue nor wisdom. Like Nobody is separate from God. Nobody can do the spiritual thing 
without support. That's why the yoga practice, meditation, Kashmiri Shaivism, whichever, they are all based on exactly this. That we ask for grace, we do the yoga practice, but yoga practice without grace is a very sad thing. All creatures are susceptible to change. That's evolution. We grow, hopefully. And because they are composed of various elements, they are called composite. While he said, if you remember, that God is incomposite. It is... I cannot find the word right now, but there was incomposite. He used exactly that. I found it. So, however, the whole universe is composite. But God is bodiless, simple, unoriginate, like has no origin, never been born. It's outside of time, beyond time. One God worshipped and glorified by all creation in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of course, in Christian spirit, he simply says that this God, which is bodiless, simple, unoriginate, one God, the creation worships and glorifies this God as the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of course, you can say, well, in other religions, they do different. Obviously. Obviously. Here, here he speaks from the standpoint of his own symbolism, of his own background. <coughs> and going to Stava Chintamani, one of the great poems of Utpaladeva, another Kashmirian poet. Let's get back to Kashmiri Shaivism. There, he wants to make the connection between the oneness of Shiva and the fact that he is a bhakta. He practices bhakti. He loves Shiva. And he is Shiva at the same time. Or he knows that he becomes Shiva. And it's a beautiful poem in which this poem is one of the typical examples of mystical madness, like loving God so much that you kind of lose the sense of reason. You don't want to be rational. You just want to lose yourself, to amplify the feeling of love until it made you explode into spiritual atoms. And he says, with my eyes closed, secretly enjoying the wonder of inner love, saying unto you, homage to you, O Shiva. So he's in front of God, he's before God. And he enjoys, he says, the wonder of inner love. Only those who have reached that level of consciousness have seen or felt 
this wonder of the inner love. And he says, homage to you, O Shiva. I would like to worship everything. I would like to worship everything till the last blade of grass. Because Shiva is everything. When you love Shiva, you love the universe. You love everything. Because Shiva is identified. There is nothing which is not with Shiva. So, he sees Shiva, he loves Shiva, he is mad. He says, I would like to worship everything. How can you worship everything? I would like to worship everything till the last blade of grass. Give me your grace, O beloved. In that space, that's all that matters, nothing else. Everything has been reached. It's like, give me your grace. The more, the better. Give me your grace. Oh, beloved, that's all that we can ever have. It's ultimately the whole universe is a game between you and God, between you and the cosmic consciousness. Then, if you give me your grace, then my soul, remaining forever at your feet, so if you have the grace then you will be forever at the feet of Shiva. That's a grace to not forget, to not get lost, to not lose it. Then my soul, remaining forever at your feet, will be filled with ecstasy. That's just a byproduct, but why not? It's great to be filled with ecstasy. My soul will be filled with ecstasy and will dissolve in an ever-renewed and eternal enchantment. Like That's what I want. I want to love God forever and never stop being in that flow. Those of you who never had such states of consciousness, try at least to think about the best moments of your aspiration when your aspiration was burning and trembling, the tremor of the heart, as Sahajananda calls it, the, the thing, you know, this vibration, this spanda in your heart, which makes that you are alive and connected. In the, and then he says, my soul will be filled with ecstasy and will dissolve in an ever-renewed an eternal enchantment. People who never had such states of consciousness, they say maybe you get bored in paradise. But Utpaladeva, who has been there, he says, my soul will dissolve in an ever-renewed and eternal enchantment. That, what he calls an enchantment of love, is ever renewed. It's never the same. You can't step two times in the same river, says a Greek philosopher, because the river flows, and it's always another river and another river. No? And he says, in an ever-renewed and eternal enchantment. So he says, I wish I could stay always in this state of bhakti and grace. 
crazy and overfilled with love. So now he gives an image of what bhaktas could be, crazy and overfilled with love. Overwhelmed by happiness till ecstasy, like drunk completely. That's why Yogananda has called it the wine of the mystics. You don't need wine. You are overwhelmed by happiness till ecstasy. Your worshippers spin. The sentence is a bit twisted, being poetic. He says, crazy and overfilled with love, overwhelmed by happiness till ecstasy, your worshippers spin. This is a wonderful remark because it sounds a little bit like Sufi dancing. There are techniques in Vijnana. There is one shloka in the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra where they mention the fact that you'd be spinning or shaking. Uh, there could be some spiritual reality emerging by bringing the body to the limit. However, Kashmiri Shaivism did not openly endorse the Sufi practices, out of which one of the practices is the dervish dance. But look that a great yogi mentions the devotees of Shiva, Utpaladeva, <coughs> and he says, crazy and overfilled with love, overwhelmed by happiness till ecstasy, your worshippers spin. So they must have had in Kashmir a few people who loved Shiva, and they were just spinning like they lost it completely. Maybe not as scientifically as the dervish dances, which is an institution already. It's codified very clearly. No, he doesn't say they spin counterclockwise or something. In Sufism, the spinning is only counterclockwise. So your worshippers spin, vibrating with their entire being because of the ineffable touch of your grace. Because of the touch of the grace. But what do they do? Vibrating with their entire being. If you had an awakening of the soul, a moment of aspiration, you know what it means that your entire being vibrates. Those of you who have experienced correctly states of bhavana, states of kundalini yoga like Shakti Chalana or others, you know that that is possible. It is possible to vibrate with your entire being. Like every cell in the body goes into this insane energy because of the ineffable touch of your grace. Ineffable. Nobody can explain how it happens. <laughs> what exactly is the mechanism? But Utpaladeva knows it's because of grace. <laughs> Blinded by tears of joy. So, hey, these people were shedding tears. They're crying of joy, of love. Blinded by tears of joy, with their face blossomed. People's faces blossom when they fall in love. Maybe when they have a great orgasm. When they, they are part of the game. But he says, these mystics, they love God so much that they are blinded by tears of joy. 
with their face blossomed, like flushed, almost like blushing, like going, shining, radiant, with their face blossomed, so expressive. Uttering incoherent words in the cosmic dance of love. Nataraja dances. It's all a dance. And it's a dance of love. But how beautiful. Blind spinning, blinded by tears, vibrating with the entire being, blinded by tears of joy, with a face blossomed. And here comes the last one. Uttering incoherent words in the cosmic dance. Have you ever met somebody so happy and so blissed out that they would utter incoherent words? Like maybe some women in an absolutely insane orgasm, they would start uttering some incoherent words. But otherwise, how blissed and blessed to be that you spin and blossom and cry and at the same time you utter incoherent words like a baby you know like incoherent you are incapable to even focus on that in the cosmic dance of love here we are talking about intensity intensity like how many people have seen such intensity that's why the sexual tantra is not wrong because many masters have said come on man i've never seen somebody in love with god that much but i've seen some people when they were in orgasm they looked a little bit like that you know like they were incoherent and shedding tears and vibrating and that's why this is the mystery of the orgasm because the orgasm is a manifestation of love is a rising of kundalini and if it can be sublimed and used for spirituality then or some people say forget about it i never was capable to love god that much i could have some insane orgasms which made me freak out completely so this is the very big secret of sexuality for the people of kali yuga it's maybe the only thing left there you know it's like okay at least this thing can move me to tears vibration spinning blossoming and why not even uttering incoherent words? And then he, you know, he just ex- exalts it. He says, the love in the Supreme Divine. He doesn't say the love for the Supreme Divine. Because the, the love is in the Supreme Divine. It's from inside, not from outside. The love in you. Oh, Shambhu. He doesn't say the love to you or the love for you. He says the love in you. Oh, Shambhu. 
the love in Shiva, O God. Like he makes less and less sense. He was speaking about the incoherent words, right? The love in Shiva, O God, but Shiva is God. Why does he say the love in Shiva, O Shiva? The love in Shiva, O God. The overflow of love, I cry with all my soul. This is important. The overflow of love. To break all barriers. The bhavana. The shaktopaya. I cry with all my soul. May my love burning and deep be only in you. That's why Ruskin, he has said it beautifully. He said, if God does not have the first place in your life, then God has no place. Because God can be only the first, the one and only. He says, May my love burning and deep be only in you. What about loving, I don't know, your relatives from your family? No. It says, may my love burning and deep be only in you. I, if you manage to integrate humanity like Jesus and some people that you love, to integrate them in God and say they are also part of Shiva, I love them Not because of what they are. I love them because they are part of God. They are just aspects of God. So may my love burning and deep be only in you. I would like to cry, Shiva. To cry once more. To always cry, Shiva. Many mystics, many Babas, they would go around and say, Shiva, bam, bam, bole, Shiva. No, they would, like they don't want anything else. They want to whip it up and whip it up and whip it up. This is the bhakti of Kashmiri Shaivas. I would like to laugh and cry of joy in the drunkenness of love. Like he doesn't care. Cry, laugh. You know, like you lose it completely. You're mad. No, it's like it doesn't matter. He says, I would like to laugh and cry of joy in the drunkenness of love. In my ardent search, I went out of my soul in full moonshine. Moonshine is the In India, it's used like a light which is pleasant because it's cool. So the pleasant light is the light of God, is Prakasha. So in my ardent search, I went out of my soul like it's not me, I'm searching for God. And I went out in the moonshine, in the light of God. In my ardent search, I came ardent means fiery. So he says, I've been looking madly. In my ardent search, I came to realize that the same God unites with the same God. Because I am that God. The thing which makes me burn is you. Therefore, the same God unites with the same God. If we don't have this grace, 
that God should come and live in us through this intensity, spinning, crying, blossomed, incoherent, you know, like letting go completely, then it's not the same God uniting with the same God. Only like this, there is the grace. He ends by concluding and saying, this whole world is you, O Shiva. Which is true as well. But this is the Bhava Samadhi. This is already externalizing it on the object. He has moved to the stars and the planets and the Prakriti. says, this whole world is you, O Shiva. What are all these things and beings? He means both objects and beings. They are your eyes. Like wherever you look, Shiva is looking back at you from there. What are all these things and beings? They are your eyes. So the whole universe is pure consciousness. And in such states of love, as you can see, one person was talking about the knowledge of God and the other one relates with love to the same God. In the Indian mysticism, there is a beautiful poem called Nirvana Saktam, Satkam uh, of Shankaracharya, ascribed to Shankaracharya. is the famous one who says, Who am I? I'm consciousness and bliss without end. I'm Shiva. I'm Shiva. Somebody in the Vedic, in the Vedantic tradition, has written a reply to this, Another Who Am I? The author is not even completely clearly known. Who is who wrote this one? Because it's not the same author. It's not Shankaracharya. Maybe you have heard the one with Who am I? I'm consciousness and bliss without end. It's very beautiful. Very amazing. But I would like to share this other one which you probably have never heard. And... It's based on that. It's the fundamental question. He says, who am I? I am the God of Gods. Deva, Deva. The Deva of the Devas, right? He speaks from the standpoint of the Supreme. I am without any trace of jealousy or hate. Sometimes the Jews say that their God, Jehovah, is a jealous, angry God. Those are childish transfigurations on Zvadistana and Manipura to try to make God understandable to our limited reason. The truth is that the divine consciousness, somebody who wrote this, like emulating God, says, I am without any trace of jealousy or hate. I am the one who fulfills the sacred and much-desired goal of those determined to reach it. I hope those are you, my students. I hope you are those. These are the yogis. He says, I am the one who fulfills the sacred and much-desired goal. What is the sacred and much-desired goal? It's nirvana, it is moksha, it is the freedom and the immortality. 
It is the Divine Consciousness. I am the one who fulfills the sacred and much-desired goal of those determined to reach it. So, he puts a condition of those determined to reach it. Those who are ready to put their lives there. I am eternally luminous. That's Prakasha. Undying. Obvious. I am God. I am the awareness of the inner self. See how beautiful he relates God, the cosmic consciousness, with what the Shiva Sutra says. The Shiva Sutra says the self is the dancer. We speak about Nataraja. But who is Nataraja? The self. Atma. Chaitanya Atma. The self is the dancer. So he says, I am the awareness of the inner self. I am full of a supreme bliss. I am the supreme self. I am the infinite. I am the happiest of those who have realized the self. That's so very subjective and so very wonderful, right? Because are you happier than Ramakrishna? Can you be happier than Shankara or than Abhinava Gupta? At that level of consciousness, it doesn't matter. He says, I am the happiest of those who have realized the self. It's a subjective feeling, but it's wonderful. I am the one who enjoys realizing one's own beatitude. Because I am God, and I realize my own beatitude. How paradoxical, and yet how true. I am the prophet. I am the multitude of prophets. Which is, both are true. If you say the only prophet was Jesus, okay, I am the prophet, I am God. But I am the multitude of prophets, because all the other seers and prophets... They spoke in the name of the same God. So they are all just voices which speak for the same Supreme. I am the act of creation and I myself am the created one. With this he eliminates the story with Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, creation, creator, non-creator. He says I am the creator and at the same time I am the act of creation, and I myself am the created one. The creator creates something. But that's also God. It's not outside of God. What is created? I am the prosperity and progress. I love this verse. It is so humane. It is so warm. No, like in the end, even... A guru like Shivananda or an enlightened being like Rumi. Or, what do they want? They want no prosperity, progress. They want to see growing. Francis of Assisi was building a church, a ruined church. He was rebuilding it. He wanted to see progress, that the church will be ready sooner or later, finished. 
and some prosperity that means that they can afford two candles to burn in the honor of God or something, you know, and that they have food in the night and that they have food and that they don't freeze in the night during the winter temperatures. So it's very humane, it's an understanding, even the saints, even the prophets, even when God is manifested in the body of a Shivananda or Ramakrishna, it's normal for that human being to wish for prosperity and progress. That's why you cannot understand when people in the name of religion, they do mayhem, they do destruction, they do pain, they do, you know, but look what the Indian mystic says, I am the prophet and the multitude of prophets, I am the act of creation and I am the creative one, I am the prosperity and progress, such simple values of the, I am satisfaction, I am the light of contentment. <coughs> you would see maybe Ramana Maharishi being satisfied, being content for some simple thing. No, this is so humane because spirituality is right here. We don't need to go anywhere. Like Rumi said, there is no need to suffer. God is here. So he says, you know, he said, I am the God of gods. I am this, I am that. I am the prosperity and progress. Like why not be content with prosperity and progress? I am satisfaction. I am the light of contentment. He doesn't say it in an outrageous way. He's not a hedonist or something, but you know, these values, these words, prosperity, progress, satisfaction, the light of contentment, they are so friendly. There is so much calm wisdom in what he says. I am free of changes such as birth, disease, old age and death because I am something other than the body. When Ramana Maharishi was about to die because he had cancer in terminal form and he died the next day, he could feel very clearly, you know, he said, they say, the disciples, they say that I'm going away. But he said, how could I ever go away? Where would I go? He said, I'm here. I am. No? He said, I'm not going anywhere. That's why I'm free of changes. Atman is free of changes such as birth, disease, old age, or death. Makes no difference. Because I'm something other than the body. That's the personal history of our body. I'm not attached to objects or senses such as hearing or touching because I am without sense organs. The, according to Bhagavad Gita, the yogi is tormented by the five senses. Your eternal enemies are the five senses. But from the standpoint of this divine consciousness, he says, I am without sense organs. I am not. Those are karmendriyas, gyanendriyas. I am not those. Therefore, he says, I am not attached to some things which I hear or touch. I am free of pain attachment, hate, and fear, because I'm something other than the mind. 
he doesn't speak about physical pain. He speaks about pain, existential pain, philosophical pain. And he says, I'm free of pain, attachment, hate, and fear. He quotes some of the biggest poisons of the mind, some of the biggest suffering of the human being, because he says, I'm something other than the mind. And if the mind is impure, then your mind gives you pain, attachment, hate, fear. But that's not me. You don't see me. You haven't got me. I truly am the Supreme Brahman, which shows us that this is written by a Vedantic person, because they would call God Brahman, the Absolute. I truly am the Supreme Brahman, who is eternal, pure, and free. Like the Christian mystic, yeah, he starts giving, describing God, eternal, pure, free, who is one, indivisible and non-dual and who is of the nature of beatitude, truth, knowledge and infinite. So, here there are words, beatitude, ananda, truth, satya, sat, knowledge, Jnana, infinite, and all the other words, they are all words of, in which God has been described. But he says, I am I'm none of those. I don't have a body, emotions, mind or something. I am Brahman. Try to focus on that truth, who is one, indivisible and non-dual, and who is of the nature of beatitude, truth, knowledge, and infinite. I am the knowledge, I am the known, I am the knower, I am all the means of knowledge. There are three things in Indian logics, the knower, the known, and the knowledge which runs between the means of knowledge, the organs of knowledge, like I know by my eyes, I know by my hearing, and so on. He says, I'm all of it. And beyond this, he says, I am the knowledge, I am the known, I am the knower, I am all the means of knowledge. I am the pure spiritual existence without knower, knowledge, and known. Like even that distinction, it's not, I'm beyond it. I'm, there is a pure spiritual existence which is beyond the triad of knower, knowledge, and known. There's nothing to know by nobody because there is no separation. I am sacrifice to the gods and offering for the spirit. In the Christian mass on Sundays, when they do offer, they, there is a verse which is very difficult for me to translate in English. I'm sure it's been translated because the Orthodox mass is celebrated in English as well in many places of this world. But where he says... Um, I am sacrifice to gods and offering for the spirit. They say, we give you your things from your own things. Like if you offer to God some Easter eggs or some flowers, weren't they belonging to God before? So you took them from God to give them to God. What kind of logic is that? No, we do it because of the bhakti. 
but we give to God what he already had, what is his already. So he says, I'm sacrificed to the gods, like the sacrifice to the gods is God himself, the essence, an offering for the spirit. God is the essence of everything. I'm without the ideas of rejection or acceptance. I'm Vishnu, I'm Brahma, and I alone am their cause. Like he says, you can call me Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, whatever. And he says, but also I am their cause. Like I'm something which is beyond all those. That's of course <laughs> the idea of Brahman or the idea of Bhairava, Shiva or the idea of God as the Absolute. I will probably conclude tonight reading a bit of a longer paragraph. Like it's a page and a half, but it will take many explanations from the same wonderful Peter of Damascus. Saint Peter of Damascus. <coughs> wrote before I read to you a short paragraph which he called knowledge of God. What can be known about God? What can we say about God? If people say, who is God? What is God? And then he has another chapter which is marvelous. It's, this is a masterpiece which shows that it comes from the right place. And it's about love. Just as simple as that. But love, see here, is, these are people who are with God. So they don't speak about love like about an emotion of some sort. And he starts with words, which I saw that somebody remembered because they heard me saying them at another opportunity, and indeed these words are worth remembering, they are immortal. He says, to speak of love is to dare to speak of God. He's so humble, because God is love and love is God, as you, to speak of, do you realize that to speak of love, you, it means that you dare to actually speak about God, and to speak about God you should wash your mouth first. You know, it's like you dare to speak about God. You're going to eat shit. You're going to say stupid things. You know, whatever you say is unworthy. No? So it's like you dare to speak of God. But when you speak of love, it's the same thing. That's why, obviously here, he doesn't mean the Hollywood love or the emotional love. He speaks about that love, which is the Alpha and the Omega. He speaks about that love which Jesus has shown to us and so many other great mystics have shown upon humanity that love which is God. So he says to speak of love, like now I want to write about love. And then he starts with humbleness. He says to, for me to try to write a little paragraph to you about love, it means that you are asking me to dare, to, to dare, to speak about God. 
For, according to St. John the Theologian, God is love, and he who dwells in love dwells in God. That's John the Apostle of Christ. He calls him John the Theologian. And he wrote, God is love, and he who dwells in love dwells in God. Now, how great the rift is, how much the word love is tainted. No, you see a pornographic movie in a shop and it's called Miracle of Love or something, you know? And it's basically three boys fucking five girls. Orgies, ejaculations, also, and it's called Miracle of Love. What love? What love are we talking about? To speak about love is to dare to speak about God. God is love, and he who dwells in love dwells in God. Augustine was right, because he said, love God and do what you want. That's love. Not the misuse of the word love. People should use lust, desire, sex, pleasure. There are many words which express, and there is nothing wrong with them. But love. And the astonishing thing is, that's wonderful. The astonishing thing is that this chief of all the virtues, love is the chief of all the virtues. Like the guy, like uh, Paul, who said, if I have everything in this universe and I have no love, I'm empty, I'm dead, and there is hope and love, and, but out of all of them, love is the greatest. And the, in one, as in the famous letter to the Corinthians, and he says, the astonishing is that this chief of all the virtues, this is the chief of all the virtues, is a natural virtue. As the guru of Swami Lakshmanju said, even a worm loves its own life and existence and tries to preserve it. Even a mother hen is trying to protect her little chickens with her own body and to sacrifice herself. Love is a natural virtue, even among animals, not only human beings. Among human beings, there are many human beings who manifest true aspects of love. And they have not been educated. They have not been, you know, it's natural. We are born for it. We are made for it. Thus, in the law, and here he mentions the law of Moses, <laughs> he goes to the ancestors of Christianity. In the law, the Torah or whatever, it is given pride of place. Like even they acknowledged before Jesus that, that it is. And he quotes from the Deuteronomy some of the Jewish laws, regulations, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
When I heard the words with all your soul, I was astounded and no longer needed to hear the rest. For with all your soul means with the intelligent, insensive, like incense, which means fiery, something which burns, with the intelligent, insensive, not insensitive or something, insensive, like incense, with the intelligent, insensive, and desiring powers of the soul, because it is of these three powers that the soul is composed. See, he says the soul has at its origin three shaktis, Icha Jnana Kriya in the language of Kashmiri Shaivas. He says the soul is made of the intelligent thing because it understands. That's why you have a soul, so you are an not you are a rational being and you can understand. You have an insensitive nature, what you burn for, the the fire. And you have the desiring powers, like what you desire. So he says, I, because will, with all your soul means you should love the Lord your God with the intelligent part of your soul, with the fiery power of your soul, and with the desiring power of your soul. Because he says, this is of these three powers that the soul is composed. This is ancient philosophy. He dwells into Greek philosophy. Thus, he wants to explain because he realizes people will not understand. He says, thus, the intellect, the thinking part, the rational part, should think at all times about divine matters. Do we do? Like if I watch, I don't know, Bruce Willis and Die Hard, do I think at all times about divine matters? Of course, if a Shivananda or a Yogananda watches uh, adventure movie, they constantly connect it to divine matter. Like they constantly, it's a dialogue, they see violence, they see adventure, they see superficiality, they see foul language, but they always try to connect it with the divine reality. So, uh, this is the whole thing which I keep telling to you. Who stays 24-7 immersed in God? Milarepa, in a cave. Yeah? Therefore, this is the long trip of the soul. He says, let me explain what are the three parts of your soul and how they should love God, how they should be connected to God. Your soul, you should love God with all your soul. Therefore, you should love God with your intellect, which means your intellect should think at all times about divine matters, while desire should constantly long, entirely and constantly long, as the law says, for God alone and never for anything else. You want a, I don't know, what I want to mention a cake. You want a birthday cake? No, I want God. I remember when I was young, I saw a young girl who was playing a seductive game with my yoga teacher 
from that time. And she was playing this kind of Zvadistana seduction game. And then she goes to him and she says, Did you miss me? And he looked at her with compassion. He was a very evolved soul, you know. And he said, Dear, whatever, I, the, her name doesn't matter. He called her by the name. And he said, The only thing which I desire, which I miss, is a repose. Like a rest. Like to stop. For everything to stop. Nirvana. No? Like, don't ask me if I missed you. I missed Nirvana. No? It's, you cannot compete with that. No? So he says, our desire should constant, long, constantly and entirely, as the law says, for God alone and never for anything else. Again, are there people who desire for something and then they say, oh, it's not God? It happens to all of us. Yeah? It's a long road to perfection. To that perfection about which Jesus... The stakes are very high. And the insensive power, which means the fiery power, should actively oppose only what obstructs this longing and nothing else. Which means the human being has the right to be angry, has the right to strike back. If that anger is used to actively oppose what obstructs the longing, the desire. I desire for God and then suddenly the telephone rings. I hate the telephone. I smash the telephone. You know, because the telephone is preventing me from desiring God. So, it's allowed. It's a defense. You are allowed to use your fire to oppose anything which is <clears throat> obstructs your longing. Saint John, consequently, was right in saying that God is love. Because the soul, then he said, you should love your Lord, the, God, the Lord your God, with all your soul. Which means, whatever, God is love. If God sees that as he commanded, these three powers of the soul aspire to him alone, like God wants you to love him exclusively, that he has number one place in your life. Occasionally you like a little trip, you like a landscape, you always give it to God. You say this landscape is wonderful because the Creator made it amazing. And always, always turning to God. So if God sees that as He commanded, because the commandment comes from God, you shall love the Lord thy God, as He commanded, these three powers of the soul, which means the intellect, the desire, and the fieriness, they aspire to Him alone, then, since He is good, blessed be God, because He loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation, as gigantic and incomprehensible this cosmic consciousness is, 
it loves you and it wishes for you to be, to reach, to wake up. So because God, since he is good, like if you fulfill the commandment, then you've done your part of the deal. Then God, because he is good, he will necessarily not only love back that soul, which is very primitive. You love me, then okay, I love you. Not only love that soul, (coughs) but through the inspiration of the Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, He will dwell and move within it. Like God will become you, will come to you. You will become one with God. That's the love of God. So he says, if you do your part, then God, not only that he will love you back, that's banal, but he will dwell and move within it, just as Paul said in one of his letters. And the body, though reluctant and unwilling, for it lacks intelligence. You see, the Christian mystics have never been able to absorb the lower level of manifestations. They don't have this pantheistic, universal uh, doctrine of the Kashmiri Shaivists. They would say the body is a piece of flesh. Where is God in your body? No. If you, if you die right now, you start thinking and you rot and you are getting eaten by the rats and by the worms. You know? So it's like, is God there? They don't want to see that part. And thus, he says that nevertheless, if the spirit is divinized, then the body, though reluctant and unwilling, remember, They say your body is tamasic. Your body is reluctant and unwilling. If you want to use a more sophisticated language, you will say your body expresses the force of entropy. Which means it's reluctant and unwilling. I want to do a shava. I want to meditate. I want to do this. The body is reluctant and unwilling. Although it is so, for it lacks intelligence, they cannot see the intelligence in every cell, in every atom. Christian mysticism is a little bit skewed on this, but they have their limitations because of their theology. The body, the body, because of the spirit being from God, will end by submitting to the intelligence. Like what the intelligence tells him, that's what you have to do. The body says, okay, I'll do my karma yoga. I will do my raja yoga. I will do my, you know. So they had to fight with their own body. They know that you want to do prayer and your body says, I prefer to sleep. Yeah, that's how it is. So much they understand the spiritual war the nature of the spiritual effort. These are real people. They are not talking from some idealistic ivory tower where they say you should do this, you should do that. They really understand. They are fighting the war every day. These people understand the nature of the battle that we are fighting with. 
it will end by submitting to the intelligence, while the flesh, the symbol of the ignorance of the unconsciousness, will no longer rise in protest against the spirit, as Saint Paul puts it. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul says, sometimes my flesh is rising into protest, but the spirit should conquer and all that. Remember, they have a doctrine which is dualistic. There is always a fight between the spirit and the entropy. And now he starts a parable for one page <coughs> in which he compares the Ida and Pingala, the plus and the minus, the all the pluses and minuses of the universe, he compares them to love, which is Atman, God. He just said God is love. Love is God. Beautiful meditation. Listen to what this man has to say. Just as the sun and the moon, at the command of God, because they are ordered by God to do their work, travel through the heavens in order to light the world, even though they are soulless. Yeah, but the sun and the moon, the sun is not traveling anyway. Yeah, that's a subjective thing. That's the astronomy of those days. Subjectively, relatively, it looks like the sun and the moon, they just go around to give us light. Because God told them, serve the earth. But it's not true in astronomy. The earth is around the sun. That doesn't matter. See, he thinks mystically. He thinks theologically. He doesn't care about the science of it. Oh, religion doesn't understand science. It does understand it in a very different way. Yeah? So he says, just as the sun and the moon, this theory of the sun, and the, like any modern scientist would stop reading and say, come on, man, this guy is an idiot, you know? He's, like, He's not. He's a mystical person. Just as the sun and the moon, at the command of God, that's how his soul sees it, travels through the heavens in order to light the world. Oh, that's their purpose, to light me, you know, the world. is like so egocentric, so uh, earth-centric. Yes, but it is the mystical truth. Even though they are soul-less, some mystical people say, but doesn't the moon have a spirit? Yeah, well, he doesn't think about occult sciences, the spirit of the sun, the spirit of the moon. He tries to not go into magic and other <clears throat> doctrines, you know. He's not doing metaphysics. He's trying to speak about love. It's a chapter about love. So he says, just as the sun and the moon at the command of God travel through the heavens in order to light the world, even though they are soulless, so the body, at the behest of the soul, will perform works of light. Like your body is a piece of flesh, but because your spirit is telling it, love God, then it will be full of spirit and you will do spiritual actions. It will perform works of light. As the sun journeys each day from east to west, thus making one day, while when it disappears, night comes, so each virtue that a man practices 
illumines the soul, and when it disappears, passion and darkness come until he again acquires that virtue and light in this way returns to him. It's a long sentence, but it's absolutely magnificent. He says you are not yet in the condition that you can have a virtue, like I'm generous, I am compassionate. And you will always be. Because you are in the world of Prakriti. Everything waxes and wanes, like the moon. No? And he says, just like the sun, now it's light, now it's darkness, now it's light, now it's darkness. <laughs> he says, so each virtue, macrocosm, microcosm, but in a Christian mysticism. So each virtue that a man practices, I practice courage. Each virtue that one practices illumines the soul, and when it disappears, passion and darkness come. Like you lose your courage. You have the dark night of the soul. You lose your aspiration. You lose your daily tapas. You lose. And then you are in darkness. Amazing. Think about it. Think what a knowledge of the human soul this is. When I was young, I thought I would be doing yoga and I would not be veering one millimeter from it and so on. I had so many ups and downs in this life. There were so many tests. There was, I have, in some things, I suppose, that my consciousness tells me that I've managed to stay constant. But on the other hand, in many virtues which I tried to practice in my life, it's been good days, bad days, good days, bad days. <coughs> like the sun. Now it's daytime, now it's night again. And he explains it beautifully. He says, Passion and darkness come until he again acquires that virtue, so it will come again. Teasing you again. And light in this way returns to him. As the sun rises in the furthest east and slowly shifts its rays until it reaches the other extreme, so again he uses the cycles as model, as pattern, thus forming time, because this is a exp visual expression of time, so a man slowly grows from the moment he first begins to practice the virtues, like I want to practice the yama and niyama. And slowly you grow until he attains the state of dispassion, like detachment, finally going beyond ups and downs. And just as the moon waxes and wanes every month, so with respect to each particular virtue, a man waxes and wanes daily until this virtue becomes established in him. So you are wondering, you know, why is my yoga practice not constant? Why is my love for God not constant? 
why you know some of you have been suffering from viruses or uh, then you discover okay my enjoyment of life has diminished even my spiritual practice is not so attractive and so on people feel guilty because people are perfectionistic and they think it should go like this forever it doesn't peter of damascus from the heart from the love of god tells you take it easy because as the sun is rising and setting every virtue is coming is going then the light is coming back to you we depend of forces which we don't understand just as the moon waxes and wanes every month so with respect to each particular virtue a man waxes and wanes daily until this virtue becomes established in him he doesn't say it's impossible for you to get that virtue but he says as long as you train for it it waxes and wanes sometimes in the same day at times in accordance to god's will with god's will he is afflicted so he says it's god's will that you get a punch in the face at times you say i don't love god i'm afflicted i'm a monster i'm a fiasco at times he rejoices and gives thanks to god like my goodness i don't know what's happening but my spiritual practice is working like crazy right now you know so at times he's afflicted in accordance to god's will he is afflicted god gives you one at times he rejoices and gives thanks to god like i don't know what i have done good in a previous life but right now it's flowing unworthy as he is to acquire the virtues because still it's a state of humbleness and sometimes he is illumined sometimes filled with darkness until his course is finished amazing love amazing knowledge i have read books about yoga which described what you should do and how you should they never spoke about what's happening in the daily life that in the daily life you bite the dust three times per day in the daily life you are sometimes illumined and sometimes filled with darkness and it's according to god's will in accordance with god's will you are afflicted and at times you rejoice and give thanks to god unworthy as you may be <coughs> to acquire those virtues so it's not a constant process it's not a linear process it's a process which is like the waxing and the waning of the moon it's a process which is like the rising and dawning of the sun it cycles over cycles maybe because of the planets because of the transits because of astrology because of our own biorhythms because of god knows how many other things we are in a wheel we are like a hamster in a cage things are rotating and you know and then all this just hang on because there is half of a page left all this happens to him by god's providence the fact that you have ups and downs it's god's providence this is how you can understand the real nature of love god loves you and say by why you know and then people run away 
They don't understand. All this, the fact that you are waxing and waning and all that has been said, happens to him by God's providence. Some things are sent to keep him from self-elation. Like if everything goes good all the time, you say, ha ha, me Tarzan. You know, it's like, I am the Tarzan of spirituality. Bullshit. You are not. And then God kicks you in the ass from time to time. And then you start squealing like a puppy. And you say, how miserable I am, you know. Because you shouldn't brag. You shouldn't go like, ah, I think I'm the greatest yogi that ever lived. You know, God will kind of, you know. Then you are not the greatest yogi that ever lived. No, but that's part of the educational program. Some things are sent to him to keep him from self-elation, that you brag. And others to keep him from despair. If it would be shitty all the time, then you would be desperate and commit suicide or give up. So there has to be a bit of a temptation. There has to be a little bit of a lure to keep you going. So God is keeping you between the carrot and the stick. Now you get the carrot, now you get the stick. Amazing science. Nobody wrote this in Geranda Samhita. I'm not saying that Geranda didn't know, but they did not describe this process of fighting for the infinite. Even Buddha doesn't describe exactly what happened to him. He must have had all these ups and downs. Not all his days were equal. In those six years where he was searching for the peace, for the light. Just as in this present age, the sun creates the solstices and the moon waxes and wanes. He again uses the same thing, that both the sun and the moon, which are the luminaries and which serve God, they are the providence of God, they come and go. And therefore everything in this world is wobbling like the sun and the moon. Day and night, waxing and waning. Whereas in the age to come, there will always be light for the righteous. Like we are going in a place where there is no sun and moon. Where there is no svara. There is no variance. The kingdom of heaven is the place where you are with God all the time. There is no more waxing and waning. So this waxing and waning is here. So he says, while in the present age, the sun creates solstices and the moon waxes and wanes, whereas in the age to come, which means when you are enlightened, when you have reached the kingdom of heaven, there will always be light for the righteous. And here he touches you, he breaks your heart here. He says there will always be light for the righteous and darkness for those who, like me, alas, are sinners. So he says, I'm writing all this. Don't think I'm your daddy. I'm a sinner. And if I keep on going like this, there will be darkness for me. When he says there will be light for the righteous, He doesn't count himself in because that would be a terrible arrogance. Like, I'm one of the righteous. What if you bite the dust? 
What if you don't? Much better to not provoke God to test you. Be humble. And he says, therefore, warriors in the age to come, there will always be light for the righteous. That's John. John the theologian. And darkness for those who like me. Like he's the first. Darkness for those who like me, alas, are sinners. So he says, I still have to work on myself. Don't think I'm saying anything good about myself. So, exactly like in this world, there is up light going up and down solstices and waxing. While in the eternal, in the spiritual world, there is constant spiritual light. There is light for the righteous and for those who go into the outer darkness. And he says, I'm one of those. Very humble. Very, he doesn't think he's a teacher. Yeah? He doesn't write this like a moralist. He says, no, there will be light for the righteous and darkness for the sinners like me, alas. So, before the attainment of perfect love and of vision in God, in this time, so now when we are on the path, the soul in the present world has its solstices. And the intellect experiences darkness as well as virtue and spiritual knowledge. So he means don't be ashamed of the fact that you have ups and downs. If you haven't reached there, (coughs) then you experience solstices, waxing and waning. The soul has its own solstices. And the intellect experiences darkness as well as virtue. And this continues until through the acquisition of that perfect love to which all our effort is directed. So he says it will be like this with ups and downs until you acquire that perfect love. And with that perfect love, to which all our effort is directed, because through that, acquiring that, we are found worthy of performing the works that pertain to the world to be. So the world to be is enlightenment, is the kingdom of heaven. So he says, we search and when finally we reach that love, then then we have reached the safe haven. We are found worthy of performing the works that pertain to the world to be. Like, for example, you are found worthy to teach yoga. That is a spiritual activity in which Shiva is with you. For it is for love's sake that he who is in a state of obedience obeys what is commanded. Monks in the monasteries Buddhist or Christian, they are supposed to do what the abbot tells them to do. If abbot tells them tonight you don't sleep, then they don't sleep. Why does he do it? For love. For love, because he knows that that is his way to find that love. That is his path. It's part of the way. 
and he does it for the sake of love. And he becomes obedient. He says, yes, sir. And normally he could be a rebel. But the rebellion is over when one reaches love. <clears throat> for it is for love's sake that he who is in a state of obedience obeys what is commanded. And it is for love's sake that he who is rich and free sheds his possessions and becomes a servant. Like goes into a monastery you know, and gives away his wealth. Has nothing. He has become a beggar. Surrendering both what he has and himself to whoever wishes to possess them. Amazing, no? Like for love, we do that. For the love of God, not for the love from the porn movies. Yeah? For the real love. For the love of Christ. He who fasts, fasting, likewise does so for love's sake, so that others may eat what he would otherwise have eaten. Have you ever thought that when you don't eat, other people can eat more? Globally, in an ecosystem, it's true. But very few people fast because of love. Let them eat. Let them eat. I can fast today. I'm too fat already. You know, let them fast. Let them eat my food as well. In short, every work rightly done is done out of love for God or for one's neighbor. Because Jesus has spoken about the two loves. Love your neighbor as well is the second. One, the things that we have spoken on, of like fasting and giving your freedom and being obedient, and others like them are done out of love for one's neighbor, while vigils to stay up in the night and sing or pray, psalmody, which means singing psalms, singing for God, singing in the church, and the like, are done out of love for God. So he says, one way or the other, what you do to fast or other things, they are done out of love for one's neighbor. And things like vigil, to stay up, psalmody, to sing, prayers to sing, the liturgy and others, and the like, which means all the spiritual activity, are done out of love for God. To Him be glory, honor, and dominion through all the ages. Amen. He concludes. So, this is, in my opinion, an amazing text. Peter of Damascus about love. What amazed me when I discovered this text was this Humanity, the humanity, you know, when you read Tibetan texts of yoga, or it's like they are like machines, they are like monsters. They are like monster trucks of yoga, you know, they are like you go and you do this and then you do a thousand Udhyana Bandhas and never come back and spend 40 years on a boulder in a mountain or something. Actually, 
for the love of God, ups and downs, solstices, waxing and waning, and slowly we develop the virtues, and we can hope that we, with humbleness, we will be reaching this eternal light of which he speaks in the world to come, and that our soul will venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva, that our soul will wake up to its divine mission. It is more and more stringent that people caught in the nightmare of Kali Yuga, especially now that history is showing alarming signs which could bode very, very bad, as I was telling the other day in the Q&A session. It is very important that people value their time and their aspiration, and they consecrate their life, their energy, to the right quest, seeing how many things are just vanity and desolation, and it's just maya. And even when we try to climb the mountain of spirituality, we have solstices, and waxing and waning, and rising and dawn, and we are wobbling, and eventually we are waking up to the greater reality. But it's such a loving understanding. When you have a guru like Peter of Damascus, he understands your waxing and waning. He understands the fact that now you have a virtue, now you don't, and sometimes it's simply through the will of God. Because you have to be taught a lesson, then you have to be encouraged again. And this is real love. This is a door I can feel when I read him that he had discovered indeed this essence of love. And therefore he is authorized. He said in the beginning to write about love is to dare to write about God. Well, he dared well. He understood the subject. He understood what he was talking about. Just try to see what Shakespeare says about love in Romeo and Juliet and other. There is that story with Shakespearean love or something where, no, and uh, Queen Elizabeth is participating anonymously to one of Shakespeare's plays and then he manages to show the essence of love. If you compare that with Peter of Damascus, it's so profane, it's so superficial. Even Shakespeare, who could be Bacon or whoever, even Shakespeare is a child compared to Peter of Damascus. There are layers over layers, and understanding love, the great mystics. You can ask Rumi to teach you what love is. You can ask Omar Khayyam and Yogananda to teach you what love is. And uh, with this, I will conclude for today. It's late enough. I just wanted to share with you 
some of the poems and texts which produce uh, beautiful bhavana, beautiful spiritual turmoil, aspiration, sublimation, rising and love in God for myself. And I hope you will use them. You'll find them. Of course, we can have the administration, the teachers of the school, uh, take a copy of this text and post them for you in some site, on some forum online. The problem is not to have the text. The problem is to identify and to go into that spirit. Thank you all for joining tonight. It was a great spiritual joy for me to share these things with you. See you around in the activities of Agama in the coming days and weeks and months.